there is a force in the world everywhere we go. In fact, in the entire universe. It's complicated. It's very difficult to understand. The mechanisms behind it are not well understood by the general public. Yes, I'm talking about gravity. It's not just a good idea. It's the law. But this is not a podcast about gravity. It's a podcast about something that all of us do understand deep down, but many of us have a lot of trouble embracing. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about evolution, the evolution of species, and the evolution of ideas. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hello, Seth. This is Jeff in Milledgeville, Georgia. I want to give a shout out to my hobby of origami, the Eastern art of paper folding. If you have a child in your life, age 7 to 11 or so, it's a great time to get them involved. Children have already done the fortune tellers, made paper airplanes, so they've already done some of origami. You can go online to get a lot of complex patterns and have a lot of fun together with just a couple pieces of paper. Thanks again, and I look forward to more hearing of more children involved in the art of origami. I start with gravity because there are no gravity deniers. Everybody accepts that the Earth is somehow sucking us down, and we are able to walk without floating off into space. That a baseball travels the arc that a baseball travels because somehow gravity is involved. That light things have less, quote, gravity on them than heavy things. Gravity doesn't have much of a hard time getting accepted ever since Isaac Newton invented it when an apple dropped on his head, because it's easy to say, of course, we needed a way to explain all the stuff that's going on around us, and this is as good as any. It's got a name, and we can work with it. But evolution, evolution has been controversial since even before Darwin published his work. Darwin, whose wife was quite religious, really hesitated for decades to share his ideas because he was worried that when people heard the simple idea of the evolution of species, there would be controversy. And he couldn't have been more right. Now, let me explain really clearly and briefly the fundamental principles of the evolution of species. Number one, children resemble their parents. This is not controversial. Two cats, when they have a kitten, it's not surprising that the kitten looks a bit like the two cats. They are really unlikely to have a dog. Children look like their parents. Number two, children don't look exactly like their parents. There are things going on, two things actually, that keep children from looking exactly like their parents. One, they have two parents, so they can't look exactly like both of them. And two, there are things called mutations in which something happens as the child is being conceived that causes some of the genes in the child to be errors. But when Darwin first published his work, on evolution. He didn't know about Mendel, and he didn't know about genes. And you don't need to know it to understand the third rule. And the third rule is, these children 
are more likely to have children if they are somehow successful in the world. Meaning, if they are eaten by a predator or they starve to death before they reach childbearing age, they're not going to reproduce. Those three simple rules are all that you need to be able to describe what happens to animals, species, over the course of millions of years because they will evolve. The ones that fit into the environment the best will have the most kids. The ones who have the most kids will pass down their traits to the next generation. It's pretty simple. And now we can talk about the evolution of ideas because what we see is that if Miles Davis makes a record like Kind of Blue and it sells millions of copies, more people will hear it. Some of the people who hear it, who desire to make successful music, will make music that reminds an alert listener to something that they heard in Kind of Blue. It's not ripping it off, it's just different than it being a record of tabla drum solos. Because ideas, good ones, don't repeat themselves, but they rhyme. Now, what we see in software development, in music, in governance, in economics, in lots of things where ideas change the world, is ideas evolve. The best way to understand this might be with an example. So let me take you through a species that we're all familiar with, a species of idea. For thousands of years, traditional music was pretty stable. It was stable for a whole bunch of reasons. There weren't economic drivers or technology drivers or cultural drivers that drove music to change very much. People liked traditional music because it was traditional, because it gave us solace, because it connected our community. But every single time a musician played a traditional song, they changed it a little bit. Maybe they added a verse. Maybe they sang it a little bit differently. Maybe they changed a word. And when some of those changes resonated with the audience or the musician, they stuck. And so generations into it, people hadn't heard the original version. They'd only heard the version from the people around them. Slowly but surely, music was evolving. But then agents of change arrived. Things like cities, things like commerce, things like royalty and kings and patrons. And then, of course, you have opera houses with acoustics and the technology of things like pianofortes and harpsichords. The idea that music was going to become more complicated. It was still a fairly stable institution, though, because kings weren't that into novelty. They were mostly into status. So if Beethoven or Brahms or whoever got a commission, that was going to keep them going for years, not to play dramatically different music, but to slowly evolve music, music we now call classical for a good reason. But then time moves forward. As commerce and cities evolved, it wasn't about traditional music to connect a group we already knew. It was about the culture of the moment. When radio showed up, and Edison's recording devices, it changes again. Because now, instead of making music for the people in the room, because in the old days, if you heard a performance, it was likely the only time in your life 
you were going to hear that piece of music played, suddenly people were recording for the ages. Suddenly, something that created a foundation of stability also became an agent of change, and it evolved again. A couple more. In the late 50s, transistor radios had headphones. Headphones changed music dramatically because with a headphone, a teenager can listen to music on their own without sitting with their parents, without sitting in the living room. And teenagers, teenagers are massive change agents when it comes to the evolution of ideas because they want something new. That's really the first time at scale that music was exposed to this. And so musicians, generally dying by the time they're 27 years old, show up, listen to the music of the moment, and have to advance it. Because if they don't advance it, it doesn't spread. If it doesn't spread, the genes aren't happy. And so on and on, music evolves until we end up after the program director, after the radio station, with a post-gatekeeper world filled with things like Spotify or iTunes or whatever, where anyone who wants to put music in the world can, and it is evolving at an ever faster rate. Once you see how music as a species evolved, you can see how animals and other organisms evolve. If the world is stable, well, the beavers building the beaver dam build it a lot like they used to. But when things happen like the world getting warmer or roads getting built or a natural disaster happening like an asteroid hitting the earth and wiping out 90% of the dinosaurs who then evolve to become birds, none of it is happening with a central control. It is happening in a thousand, a million, a billion places over and over again, countless experiments being done in real time in which ideas or genes, organisms get together, have offspring that sort of looks like the one that came before but isn't exactly the same. And the ones that fit, the ones that thrive, they end up spreading their ideas. Richard Dawkins wrote a book and he had two challenges in this book. It's called The Selfish Gene. The first challenge is that people who didn't read the book thought that what the book was about is the idea that genes make us selfish. That's not what it's about. What it's about is the idea that it's easy to understand the idea of evolution if we realize that each individual gene, if we could imagine that gene had dreams and desires, dreams and desires to have grandchildren, and that each gene isn't working for the good even of the organism. They're not working at all, of course, they're just genes, but in fact, keep score of whether it reproduces. And the second breakthrough of the book, thrown in as an afterthought toward the end, is this notion that ideas don't have genes, but they do have something we could think of as DNA, something that makes them up, that Certain songs have a certain kind of rhythm that's built into their DNA, but we need a name for it, not genes. He said, let's call them memes. And once we look at ideas and realize that they might be made up of building blocks and the building blocks that spread end up having, quote, more grandchildren, we can start to have insight about how the culture works. So if a disco song becomes a hit, Suddenly, that enters the meme pool, that rhythm, a certain number of beats per minute, even a drum track, that as music sampling began to spread, we saw certain samples 
spread farther and faster than others. These were underlying bits that made up new ideas. The word meme has been changed over time to mean a complete idea, a little snippet on the internet that spreads. So an entire song, a gif, not a gif, a gif, things that people recognize are called memes. Dogecoin is based on a meme. But even if we're going to extend the definition that far, it's still the same idea. DNA, genes, memes, evolution. What happens over long periods of time, which could just mean many, many generations of a short-lived species or idea, is that they evolve. If you want to create DDT-resistant fruit flies, fruit flies have very short generational length, what you do is you put a bunch of fruit flies in a mason jar with just a few drops of DDT in it, and most of the fruit flies will die, but a few of the fruit flies will have kids that are DDT-resistant, and then they will go on to have kids that are DDT-resistant. If you have ever gotten a flu shot, Getting a flu shot is evidence that there is evolution at work in our lifetime, right in front of us, because one flu shot doesn't last you your whole life. The reason it doesn't last you your whole life is new variants of the flu evolve, and they can get past the antibodies that were created in your body from the last variation of the flu. That when we look around, for example, in Britain, Hedgehogs used to be a joke because there were dead hedgehogs all over the roads because hedgehogs and cars don't really get along. Well, now you don't notice as many dead hedgehogs. Why is that? Are the hedgehogs extinct? No, not at all. What's gone on is that the slow hedgehogs became extinct, but the variation of hedgehogs that were faster or more alert to cars, they continue to thrive because there's more food for them because the slow hedgehogs are dead. So when we think about culture and we think about how it moves forward, we're dealing with some bit of irony here because ideas that spread win. And one of the ideas that spreads and then retreats and spreads and then retreats is people who haven't done the reading saying, quote, I don't believe in evolution. Wait, they believe in gravity. I don't even believe in gravity. I know there is gravity, but I don't understand this whole force space Einsteinian idea of black holes bending the universe, but there's gravity for sure. But evolution? Evolution I understand. And the only way to deny evolution is not to say, I've done the reading, and it's simply not true. Because you can't say kids don't resemble their parents. You can't say that over time, species and ideas don't evolve. Because it's obvious right in front of us that they do. Instead, what you can say is, this idea, the one right in front of me, my life will be better, not because I have a cogent argument about why it's wrong, simply because denying it puts me into a circle of people where I feel more comfortable. Denying it itself is a meme. It is a building block of other elements of our culture. So once you see this, you can't unsee it. I wrote a book years ago called Survival is Not Enough. Charles Darwin wrote the foreword. 
which isn't easy because Charles Darwin was dead. But the essence of that work is simple. Ideas change our lives, and ideas keep evolving. We can't deny it because it's there, right in front of us. The question is, which memes are you exposing yourself to? The question is, which ideas are you amplifying? Which ones are making our lives better? And which ones can we try to create cultural standards so they eventually become extinct? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, you can check out the show notes or make a submission. Hi, Seth. This is Tausif Akkas from Perth, Australia, originally from Dhaka, Bangladesh. You've mentioned Isaac Asimov quite a few times over the years in your books and your podcasts. And you usually bring him up when talking about the creative block or the writer's block and explaining how the block is a myth. Now, upon some further digging, I read quotes from Isaac where he says that he never stared at a blank sheet of paper. He would simply leave the writing project he would have at hand and go on to any of the dozen other different projects that are at his disposal. He would then go back to his original work with newfound inspiration. However, in this day and age of quote-unquote creative jobs at certain industries, say at agencies or media companies, such tactic is rather difficult to deploy. Many individuals who work these jobs will have to produce something for a client to meet strict deadlines or work through many other difficult constraints. So my question to you is, what should an individual do in these creative roles when they do hit these blocks, where taking a break from a blank sheet of paper is a luxury and sometimes even impossible? Thank you for everything that you do. You've changed my life in ways that will be difficult to explain in this short audio clip. 
Stay well and healthy, Seth. Thanks for this, Tosif. It was really cool to know Isaac Asimov. I was at the beginning of my career. He was at the end of his. And working with him on a big, big project was absolutely delightful. What Isaac was describing was a hack, and it is a really effective hack, and it's available to everyone. What he was saying is not that Project B is better, more interesting, or more useful in this moment than Project A. What he was saying is that the existence of Project B is how you get refocused on Project A. So if you are creative in any sense, there is something else in your office you'd like to do less. Maybe you have to do bill collection. Maybe you have to organize your hours to do your billing. Maybe you have to go for a meeting with someone or go to some job interviews and talk to people you don't feel like. Those are the things you put on the table for when you're feeling, quote, blocked, unquote. Because anything is better than that, and so you'll get back to work. It's when we believe that we have no choice but to come up with the thing that we have to come up with. That's when we get stuck. Some people need that deadline, that charrette, that emergency. But that's sort of addictive, and it will lead to danger. The alternative is to become a professional and to realize you can do the work when you want to do the work. And one reason to want to do the work is that you're a professional. And when you find your mind wandering, just do something you like even less, and you may find that focus returns. Hello, Seth. This is Pavel from Toronto. When I was listening to your most recent episode about white elephants and gifts, I want to ask a related question just at the intersection when you realize that you need to return the gift, when you um, need to um, uh, not accept the gift and, and ignore the sunk cost that went into a project. And uh, for context, the sunk cost I'm talking about is just the experience, the connections, and some credibility that I've built over a decade and a half uh, in the financial services industry. Um, this is in this industry, while it's well marketed, it's full of brilliant people. Unfortunately, it takes to a large extent advantage of an individual investor. It's something that's both frustrating and sad to me. And as I'm thinking about embarking on a new project um, and uh, thinking about the people I want to serve. I'm thinking about how to discover very quickly potential conflicts of interests uh, in other industries and uh, how to quickly find out what other what the people in other industries are all about um, quickly and potentially without doing expensive trial and uh, error um, experiments and, and launching multiple projects. I would very much appreciate hearing your thoughts on that. Thank you for your incredibly generous work for over the last nearly 40 years. And... Um, the impact that you've had on me over the last 16 years since I've uh, first discovered your blog. Thank you. Thanks, Pavel. Thank you for caring about the work you do and the people that you serve. The white elephant might be a distraction here. I think what you're asking me is, how do we know before we get into it what an industry is like? And my take is this. There really aren't industries. There are people. There are people with objectives and stories and fears and dreams and desires. There are people who may show up for you. And some industries have more people like that than others. And the smallest viable audience instructs us that we just need enough of those people. When my friend Lynn was failing in the toy industry, I invited her over to the book industry because I explained that the people that I knew in the book industry were a lot 
more open to working with outsiders and a lot more trustworthy. Were there people in the toy industry who were like that? Of course there were, but there were more of them in the book business. She ended up selling a bestseller, one that sold millions of copies, first time up to bat, and I have huge respect for her doing that. It's not because the industry was ready. It's because it was easier for her to find someone. So my practical advice is you need to go to a place where people in the industry are and interact with them. And don't judge too harshly at first, but look at what has happened before. And then you can get a sense as to what sort of people that industry attracts. Hey, Seth, this is Tim from Pasadena, Maryland. I recently listened to Expect Delays, and while I usually love your rants, this one I found frustrating because there wasn't any kind of how do you solve this problem involved with the rant. So it got me thinking, on one end of a seesaw, you might have redundancy, um, and on the other end, you might have efficiency, and we all kind of have to decide how we want to balance the two because that CFO may decide, I want to be very efficient so that uh, that she she can be uh, more profitable, or she may decide, I want to be very redundant so I can be very resilient. But I think an interesting question, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, would be, how do you decide what is appropriate? And and how do you change the expectations or the culture to maybe make better choices there that are more beneficial to more people? Thanks for all you do, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for this, Tim. In fact, you did understand the point of the episode, but the words may have gotten in the way. The point of the episode was that efficiency in these crazy times lies in redundancy, that the CFOs were taking advantage of a momentary blip in which non-redundant risky activity seemed efficient, and it's not anymore. The single best way to be efficient, to keep a promise to people that you're going to deliver something to them, is to add layers of slack. That slack, not the software, but the concept, improves efficiency because it improves performance. And to figure out where you need to be on the spectrum, it depends on the promise that you are making. If you are running an emergency room where life and death decisions happen, I sure hope you have more than a week's supply of bandages in stock because the promise you have made does not include, oh, well, we'll get to it when we get to it. On the other hand, if you make, I don't know, bespoke artisanal baskets for thousands of dollars each, It's okay to run out of supplies for a week or a month at a time because no one's buying baskets from you on an emergency basis. So what's the promise? What's the promise to your shareholders? What's the promise to your customers? And in general, the most efficient way to keep those promises, except for the one that's we're cheaper, is to build some slack into your supply chain. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, 
yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.